Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Dr. Brad Evans, who's a regular guest. He did the very first Under the Skin and uh, I will tell you plainly, he was, when I went to university, that's right, I'm very, very well educated. I went for, I think, nearly two whole terms, didn't I? Yeah, but not a whole year. So I'm still one of the best educated folks down at the whole campus. Uh, so Brad, if, if you don't know, is a professor of political violence at the Department of Politics, Language and International Studies at the University of Bath. His latest book is called Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. It's out now. We'll put a link in the description for you. Uh, we often post his stuff, his recent article on Maradona. Many of his articles on current affairs are really useful to helping me formulate my thinking. I consider him a great mentor in the area of education jen what you got to say yeah he speaks like a professor you like him eh? yeah i realize he uses the word fundamental a lot fundamentally because he's welsh fundamental yeah. yeah that's what that's my observation well done jen that's really thanks thanks for coming um okay um jen if you do you like i've expressed my love of brad do you want to say anything about you know do you want to have a how's banter? your week yeah that how's your week <laughs> Well, I was asking you, how's your week? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> good. I've yeah. like, done Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. My children are doing, like, my daughter's doing a lot of quite good art that she says, Dad, why don't you put it in your, I can see her starting, like, new concepts entering her mind. Put it on your newspaper and uh, we'll sell it and I can get money. And the money, I'll put it on my bedside table. So she's understood the concept of capitalism there. Yeah, she seems excited by it. It's got something exciting about it, capitalism. It's, it's caught on for a reason. And another generation <laughs> is really leaping on board. That's good. Yeah. So like, there's that. Yeah, got to get it rocking. Um, as for my animals, they're pretty good. All of my 10 cats, our two dogs. I'm enjoying some nice countryside walks. I'm walking around. I'm looking at the moon. I'm thinking about God all the time. Oh, best you, I can. In a way where you go, is he there or are they there? Or There's nothing is about it, God. Is it there? I don't have a question about that. When you think that. of it, do you talk to it? <sighs> right, listen. The <laughs> eye, as, as Meister Eckhart said, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. The fundamental <laughs> uh, <laughs> essence of your being is God. Like, what is it? to experience life now a materialist will say well no because the, we evolved these faculties and as synaptic connections become more complex you get the phenomena of consciousness and i say no consciousness was always there and as uh, uh, the brain evolved it becomes able to receive more pervading frequencies of consciousness and these frequencies of consciousness in inverted commas are God. In um, Sanskrit, as I've told you many times, Jen, there's one line from which all the characters emerge and, f and what he says, Lynch, is that is the unified field, the unified field from which all phenomena and pneumonema, if I can say that, probably not it's not a word, but the, the sense of pneumonism, the sense of the holy emerges from this field of the unified so like when i'm walking around in a field and i'm just i'm just me of course and i'm going oh god oh, i'm worried about something or i want something or is it cold or is that some poo you know i'm thinking all those thoughts but i'm also feeling like, like the, the moon i'm feeling it and i'm wondering about ideas of materialism versus idealism is the material world really there is consciousness a mirror reflecting itself back at itself? These are the things I'm thinking. What are you Does it make to? you feel nice? I like it basically, yeah. I like it basically. Of course, there's still great sadness in the idea of loss and entropy. What about you? Like, what, what about me? 
Which what, bit? What are you thinking? The, when what I, you walk out, I often try to think about how nice the situation is. What situation? Like are you I thinking? look at things a lot and I think, how do I feel about that? What? Give me one example some, of something you looked at. Some, uh, often the moon. You look at the moon and you think, how do I feel about that? Yeah, I'm like, should I feel emotional right now? Did you like it that? Did you like? Should I feel emotional right now? That'd be a nice <laughs> postcard. A picture of the moon with the phrase "Should I feel emotional right now?" Um, did you like Doctor Pro- Professor Noel Fitzpatrick's poem to you that I read out this morning? <laughs> did you like it? Meeting? Did yeah, you? I, I did like it make it. you feel good? <laughs> yeah, I like Noel Fitzpatrick. He's, he's he's expressing himself. Yeah, I mean, no one's ever really written me a poem before. That's a nice one. I follow you. I keep yeah. it. I frame it. Do you want me yeah, to get it, it framed? I'll put it on my wall. Yeah, I'll get it framed for you. The only other thing framed I have is your tour poster. Two things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my life. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, we'll get it framed. We'll get it framed. I'll put it on the list of framings. <laughs> Got to get things framed. Gotta you love get... getting things I remember. You love getting things framed. How do you know that? Because I, I, like... I was around during a framing period. I love framing. <laughs> really? Look, for example, that's been framed up there. That, um, that memory card that Bear chewed up. Yeah. There it is. You love framing framed. things. Is that like a metaphor for what you're doing when you're walking around, putting a little frame around things? Listen, <laughs> if you think that there's no object, uh, that all everything is various forms of subjectivity framed in the mind of the individual, yeah. there's certainly an argument for that, Jen. <laughs> you're looking at yourself now. <laughs> Thought I'd have a quick look at me, see what I'm doing. Frame me for a second. Is that your consciousness looking back at you? Let me see. Yeah, it is. If you look at yourself, it's weird. If you look at yourself long enough, weird stuff starts to happen, whether or yeah. not you've even done acid. I looked at my hands when I was seven once for a very long time. And I thought, remember this moment for the rest of your life. And I have. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, Jen, because you've got the gnarled hands. Of, they're, like, they're like oak tree roots. No, I wanted to see how they age. What do you got? The slender fingers of Snoop Dogg? I have nice hands. Well, you got the slender. Let me have a look at them again. Oh no, Jen! No, they look like uh, they look like it's when you drop an egg on the floor. You surprisingly thin fingers. When you drop an egg on the, I've got the, ele- I've got elegant hands of a pianist. You like your fingers. If you drop an egg on the floor and all the the, the egg splays out, that's what yeah. your hand looks like. No. Smashed egg. No, yes, Jen. Jen, yes. Smashed egg hands. I'd call those. Thanks. And mine's. It's a new I, thing. I got the. You know, in that film Shine. Yeah. I got hands like him. You know, the pianist. The pianist. Yeah, the pianist <laughs> from Shine. You know him, the pianist. No. <laughs> da, 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 da. Bumblebee, bumblebee, him. All right, so listen, because Brad will be listening to this. So let's, Brad. Let's sharpen up. There's some comments. There's some, I'll call, I'd call them short comments on the Van Dana <laughs> Shiva episode. Now it's time for comments. Lauren May Yoga, Yoga Veda. Every word of this podcast is gold. Brum CC. Vandana Shiva is one of the great figures of our time, particularly in terms of speaking truth to power. So grateful for her spirit and energy. Well, I love her. She's I consider her to be a spirit mother. Listen to shout out, shout outs, and Apple Podcast reviews. Listen to shout outs. Zach Jones, big fan of your podcast. Also the Finn. I'm so grateful for your channels. What do you think he means by the Finn? For me. Mm, that's weird. Ephany DeRosby. Hi, I'm a fan. I've been sober 38 years and I still have a lot to learn. Me too, Ephany. I'm humbled by your work. I enjoy listening to you interview great folks on your Luminary podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Now, these people may have written into my mailing list. You go to russellbrand.com, you get on my mailing list, you get regular bulletins, you hear about my live show. I'm going to be all over the UK, including dates in Scotland coming soon. I'm going to release them in a couple of days. So have a listen out for that. What are you saying, Jen? Are you coming to Norwich? I think I am coming to Norwich. I think I'm coming to Norwich. Oh, okay. Why, are you going to come to Norwich? Yeah. 
All right. Have a look. <laughs> Click on the list and, you know, I'm going to be there. Also, it's nice. We've got little crows representing each town. Above the Noise. My meditation podcast called Above the Noise is on Luminary. You've already got Luminary. You've proven that by listening to this now. Go and have a meditate. Listen to Brad Evans. Get into the complexity of listening to me questioning a great thinker and then go and meditate. What's the latest meditation we've done? Uh, for, for finding your purpose through Kundalini Chant. That's pretty good. Yeah. Go and do that. It's out every Wednesday. Okay, so I've told you to be on my mailing list. I've asked you to come on my tour. I've told you about Above the Noise. You know I do a YouTube channel of news-oriented videos as well as the Awakening Side channel. Please ensure that you're subscribing to all these things. And now let's just enjoy Brad Evans. Sit and listen and see what you learn from this. Tell, tell me as well in your emails what you'd like to see more of. What would you like to learn more about? Spirituality, how to form communities, how to run your own life, off-grid living. Do you want to get off the grid? Do you want to get off it? Do you not like the grid? Is the grid like the crucifix? Do you want to be free of it? Are we the grid? Yeah, we're just framing it in our minds, Jen. Yeah, probably, right? All right. I mean, it, says yeah, we are. Yeah. But I say there is an objective truth, an object yeah. under apparent material reality in the mind of God. Yeah, cool, yeah. Uh, should we listen to Brad then? Yeah. All right, here's Brad Evans. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Brad, thanks for coming on Under the Skin again. It's always a pleasure, man. It's always a great uh, honour to chat with you. So. Thank you. I consider you sort of fundamental to the project of Under the Skin, by which I mean the... Um, intention to bring esoteric knowledge to es exoteric platforms and um and to communicate openly about issues that are relevant to us all but sometimes obscure opaque and difficult to appreciate brad we've just just conversationally we're talking about how our lives have, as individuals have changed and how the world has changed in the sort of um wow is it three or four or five years that we've been mates Tell me how that what's happening recently relates to the themes that have always interested you. The, the ability of powerful systems to manage and control our reality. And, with, and the reason I'm grateful to talk to you, because I know you're not a person who holds much truck with Baroque conspiratorial um, uh, theories and proselytizing, but, uh, you know, approach things rigorously. Tell, tell me wh what you think we should be concerned about and what you think is mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting. Was, I, I was thinking back to the, you know, the very first time we met and which was the, obviously the very first episode of Under the Skin. And we were at that time really concerned with liberal societies and how liberal societies were coming to terms with the legacy of terror and terrorism and, you know, these kind of events which were really dominating the landscape at the time. Now, we know, obviously, recently there's been another reminder of terrorism, but we're in an entirely different political moment. And now the last time we spoke was really at the start of the pandemic. And the pandemic, we now having have enough distance from it to recognize the impact it's had globally for politics. And one of the things which really strikes me and the thing which I kind of tried to write about actually in, in the last book which I put together was 
What seems clear to me now is how the pandemic was the very first crisis of a post-liberal order. So, so the pandemic has ushered in basically. So while, for instance, most of our lives were very static and actually, you know, it seemed like most of our lives was put on hold really. Um, the forces of power have accelerated beyond any conceivable measure. And, and, and as you say, this is not about being conspiratorial. It's just about recognizing the ways in which power has been fundamentally altered within a very short space of time. And I think what I mean by that is, of course, is, you know, is, okay, how do we understand now if liberalism is not the dominant form for power in the world today? And I think Afghanistan, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is a good reminder of that. Then my question is, what is? And one of the things which I've been trying to argue in my work is that we've now entered into an age governed by what I've called a global techno-theodicy where technology is now presenting itself as the new religion. And it's the only thing which is presented to us as the things that will save us. And, you know, with all crises, there are winners and losers. We know this historically. If we look at the current crisis we go to, there's nothing hidden about who are the winners of this game. And it's the big tech companies. And, but these companies are not just, you know, capitalist entities. They are the most dominant political players in the world today. And I think this is the moment in which we're in, which requires us to really get up to speed with how fast they've accelerated their frames for power, which I think is quite extraordinary in the short space of time in which it's happened. When you think of the last wave of magnates and the sort of power of Rockefellers and like the uh, Carnegie and steel and oil, the... You know, like I'm, just, I'm talking about this sort of archetypally, I suppose, rather than in a very literal way. But we were dealing with energy and power and the resources of the earth. Now, even though someone like Adam Curtis would say that m many of these tech companies are essentially aggregating data in order to advertise. So there's nothing particularly innovative about what they're doing in, from one perspective, they're just, you know, advertisers in a way or aggregators of advertisers. But when I look at it the same way as I would sort of analyze what the steel and oil and fuel industries were doing sort of, you know, a century ago or whatever, like it's the, the raw material is consciousness itself. It's awareness itself. It's the experience of being is now being corralled manipulated and managed in a way that is perhaps without precedent is that part of what you're saying yeah absolutely i think you know and i think you're right we need to have a good appreciation of the history of technology to, to understand you know it's what's a continuation but also what's radically new as well and i agree with you fully russell in terms of you know the if we look at the old forms of mechanization and industrialization there was even then, of course, there was concerns about whether that technology was kind of um, dominating and shaping our lives. You know, there was this old kind of saying about humans are now ghosts in the machine, for instance, and we were kind of being stripped of our subjectivity and agency. But there was a great deal of reaction to this, and people would argue that we, you know, in the 1960s, there was a whole great debate around technological determinancy, and actually the social was driving the technological, the technology was, wasn't driving the social, right? But I think your point about the raw energy is absolutely central because if you look at those old kind of mechanized forms of industrialization 
All they simply honest was, was literally raw human energy. Right? So that's all they needed from us was our own kind of, you know, and men dug for men to get more profits, right? And that, that's quite, you know, simple. So there's that kind of raw capacity of human energy. The new technologies don't need that energy at all. They, they're not bothered with the bodily aspect of raw kind of extraction of human value in that old kind of mechanistic sense. And the question then is, if it's not harvesting raw human energy, then what is it harvesting? Well, it's our minds. It's harvesting our attentions. It's harvesting our focus. It's harvesting our gaze. It's harvesting everything which goes into making what we call consciousness itself. And, and what's kind of interesting, you know, if you look at all the kind of big titans today of the new kind of artificial intelligence and all these new advanced technologies, they're always questioning whether humans actually have consciousness at all. They always keep saying to you, you know, well, how do you know you have consciousness, right? You know, is it not just, you know, vast chemicals that we can kind of work out ourselves? And I think this is a real dangerous moment in which we're entering in, in which actually we're stripping away something far more pernicious about what it means to be human. And, and, and through this process, this, you know, this idea of a neuropolitical colonization to me is, and again, it's not being conspiratorial. We can see it happening before our very eyes. It's not, you know, this is not kind of fanciful. This is something which anybody who spends 10 minutes on social media will know how pernicious this can become in terms of the, the constant addictive qualities of it, the harvesting of your desires, the ways in which it's kind of guiding human life now, politically, socially, and so many other ways, which those old technologies could never even dream of doing. When people talk about behavioral science and sort of um, cite, say, Skinner, you know, and uh, like nudges the way that um, and the way that we would our behavior would be adapted through suggestion and through um, through suggestion and through reward, say, this, and sort of in the manner that one would treat other animals experimentally. Um, now that we could be held in almost continual interface with with um, the mechanic of manipulation in the, the manner that you've just described, the potential for something that a little while ago, where we might have just, in, in terms of propaganda, encountered some imagery or voluntarily watched TV, is now like, I, again, just speaking personally of my own phone use I, I i try and like I, I work pretty hard on both educating myself and trying to m maintain a degree of spiritual equilibrium i meditate i do brazilian jiu-jitsu i do cold plunges i pray i try to do things every day that are for other people these are all sort of techniques that i've been like, hard hard earned and hard learned and i still I'm a, I feel like in the thrall of that device and like, you know, and, and they came into my life when I was well into my thirties. So if that you're a native of this new land, in a sense, it's, you, you will never have any objectivity around it. It's going to be, it may as well, you may as well be a cyborg. You all but are. So how, how do you, how radical do the solutions to a problem this immersive have to be? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I think there's an interesting question around, first of all, you know, the, uh, there's a brilliant quote by, you know, when Spinoza asks, you know, how do the masses learn to desire their oppression as though it was their liberation, right? And I think if we think about this in terms of technology, the question we can kind of flip it around in terms of, you know, why have we learned to desire our dependency on this stuff and even our determinancy on this stuff so much where it's almost like if we don't exist in the digital world anymore, we don't have a subjectivity. We know, we, you know, we don't have a meaningful life, but as, as we know, you know, all the things that we have, which are meaningful in lives, don't take place on those digital forums, right? You know, it, it requires genuine human connection and contact. Now, the one thing I'm struck about, you know, in the examples which you give, Russell, in terms of, you know, that um, all these kind of ways in which we can kind of find a rebalance in life, but also, you know, take the time to really make sense of the world and take the time to really understand ourselves, which we think about deep spiritual connections or deep philosophical connections. You know, these are not imminent decisions. They require a great deal of historical understanding of ourselves and the world. And one of the things we think about, you know, the ways in which these technologies work is, it's all through a social politics of imminence. Everything is immediate. Everything, you know, Andy Warhol used to say you'd have 15 minutes of fame, right? You, you're lucky if you have 15 seconds today, right? It's, it's imminent and it's gone and it's imminent and it's gone. And we know then for younger generations who are born into this, the anxieties this creates, the perpetual anxieties it creates. But if we think about it politically, you know, we're dealing with like, for instance, if we talk about some of the most catastrophic politics that we have to deal with an imminent response is the last thing we need you know we need if we want to think about a deep spiritual politics in terms of responding to ecological disasters or terrorism or whatever anything else we can't have an imminent politics that responds to that we need something which takes time something in which we can learn to understand something more about ourselves through catastrophic moments and and i think you know what i'm increasingly starting to recognize is that actually imminent democracy is the worst kind of tyranny because it's demanding such immediate responses from us to problems which are so complex that what it lends itself to is a politics of pure emotion. And we know when we're caught in a situation of pure emotion, we often make the wrong decisions. We often, you know, go by things where we kind of, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't felt that way. And you know that we kind of say, well, if we still can only step back from it, you know, how would social media look if before everybody posted anything, you just needed 24 hours to reflect? You know, I'm sure the terrain would be very different in terms of the conversations which I had. And I think it's, an, it's that imminence, which is very, well, it's deadly in terms of politics, I think. You mean imminence as in, in the moment, spontaneous? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, in that, and in the, you know, I'm not saying spontaneity is not a, a very important capacity for human beings, because it is. And something within the spontaneous is integral to freedom. We need to be spontaneous. We need, because we're not machines and behaving spontaneous is, is, is powerful. But when spontaneous becomes something which can be massified very quickly, and massified in a way which can lead to a general economy of emotion and effect, which can, you know, which can lead to, you know, like social media pylons, shamings, all these kinds of things which we see happening. 
by, you know, people who believe themselves to be on the left as much as the right, I think we're in very dangerous political terrain, which, you know, one of the lessons of, you know, historical politics was about the dangers of public shaming. And I think we're in an age today where it's, where young people, you know, what it means to grow up with these technologies now and the shaming and the bullying and all this stuff which goes on. I think we need a fundamental rethink of this because it's deeply embedded now, not in politics, but in our consciousness as well, as you mentioned. With the arguments that are often made around gun control, you say that, you know, the sort of a frequent argument is, look, when these amendments and constitutional decrees were offered, the technology was a little more limited. And now the capacities of weapons is so dangerous that, that there surely should be reflection of that, which seems to me to be a reasonable argument. Um uh, again, uh, around technology and, and around your ideas around imminence and the ability to manage this sort of this continual fluctuation, this overstimulation, which I sometimes feel like, you know, like sometimes because of your facility with language and your knowledge of philosophy, you're able to talk at a pretty high pitch, you know. But really, it sounds like what you're describing is that kind of caffeinated, saccharine rush of modern life of that there is no place of rest there is no place of uh, of sanctuary or sovereignty within the individual that your life has become this kind of nervous i'm going here i'm doing this what is that oh i've had another text oh there's a whatsapp message gotta check my phone what's happening oh no this bill's coming like that we're being sustained in a psychological space and ontological space that is uninhabitable for us and that 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 anxiety is becoming a precondition. Now, like I reckon that we have described the state of living for a lot of people. Many people sort of switch off. Like numbing becomes a sort of a necessary response. You can see why there'd be an opioid crisis in you know even before you get into the social and economic conditions that might accompany the um, you know the, the the condition that I've just described. You can see why people would want to numb themselves. Why in the end, curiously staring at a screen seems attractive. Sometimes that's what sometimes that's what I want to do. I've spent my day doing stuff and making decisions and making choices and having highbrow conversations and all this stuff and then I just want to be numb I'm a drug addict you know that's part of me still and the I be being um, aware of myself enough to recognize let go you know you don't need to like you the last thing you need to do is stare at a screen the last thing you need to do is stare at a screen I think we're describing the situation pretty well in this, you know, given that we are describing now a, a pretty unique and truly global, i.e. pandemic, so global situation, well, how do you think and do you feel comfortable discussing how, you know, the major players in this situation, how, do, how does this pandemic play out according to a rubric that you would have probably used to analyse power prior to this pandemic when you look at the players I um, like pharmaceutical companies, non-government global agencies and national governments? For example, looking, uh, about, uh, looking at what's going on in Australia, how do you feel about the areas that have become taboo? How do you feel about the sort of... Because I was starting to feel prior to this pandemic that liberalism was becoming auth and, and you've touched upon shaming culture, that liberalism was starting to become authoritarian, puritanical and, and punishing. And, and, and I th 
I, I've been saying this a lot and I'm not sure the, the the veracity of the statement and it would be a lovely thing to hear what you feel of. I sort of I feel about like I feel like sometimes since Trump and Brexit, everything's Trump and Brexit. Like now everything in the like, medicine, mask, everything is divisive. Everything is tribalized. And I talked to Vandana Shiva yesterday. She said a couple of things that I know you'll be interested in. I know I'm hitting you with a lot of stuff here to answer, but I also know that this is how you think and talk anyway. And Vandana Shiva said the divide and conquer has always been a sort of a, an imperialist uh, a, a imperative and method. And that, um, you know, to your point right at the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about this new, I can't remember the exact, you said something like technological or technocratic theology or something. Um, and like... Um, she was talking about how we're offered the idea that this is a new, like, you know, it is functioning as a god because it is presented as objectivity. This is a fact. This is true. But she says these algorithms, they create them. They are responses to these, they're programmed algorithms. She's speaking particularly around agriculture, stuff that Monsanto have done in her country and, and uh, I, India. And, you know, but like, the, the, I can see how this is playing out more broadly. The information that's being presented as empirical is anything but. So just a few of those things again. How would you use your pre-existing uh, rubric of analysis in particular with regards to this pandemic? Um, what do you think about what's going on in places like Australia vis-a-vis -vis authoritarianism? And, and how has liberalism, with with all of its initial emphasis on freedom, has become antithetical to that in practice? And, and do you even agree with that analysis? Yeah. I think I've often found in terms of analysis of power, if the location of power looks obvious, it's probably not situated there, right? So, so like, so you know, um, and I often felt that Trump, Trump was very much a distraction and a powerful distraction, but a distraction nonetheless to the, the wider operations of power, you know? And we knew historically, if you want to understand, you know, good old fashioned state power in the United States of America, it was never George Bush, it was always Dick Cheney, you know? There was always something behind this that, that's kind of operating and that's how real power operates. Now, in terms of thinking about, first of all, you know, the legacies of someone like Trump, I find it extraordinary. First of all, let's not forget that Trump only came to power because of the power he was able to wield through social media. That, that was that was his mobilizing factor. But then we're in a situation where, you know, if you talk about religions, religions always have these narratives of salvation. And there comes a moment where the social media companies suddenly say, you know what, we're going to save you from this guy, right? We're going to become the political salvation because we now recognize that this guy is dangerous. And, and actually en masse, literally throw, you know, an elected president of the United States of America off these platforms, right? Now you think, well, you know, some will say, well, actually, you know, we, we had too much of Trump in our headspace. And, but should these organizations, whatever we think of Trump, I've written very critically of him, but these companies should not have that power to basically strip away the voice of a president of the United States of America. And I think that is, you know, and to me, it was, it was almost revealing how, you know, it was almost like a case of where's Wally, right? Trump seemingly just disappeared from the planet. And how can you make sense of that kind of disappearance of somebody who was in our headspace for so long and then almost fell off a cliff? And there was no kind of a way of kind of engaging with him in, in that way then. And I thought that was quite a real powerful moment in revealing where power 
kind of lives, right? In, in terms of thinking about this. Now, your second point then is in terms of, you know, um, what comes through this, and I agree in terms of any study of history where there's been a cataclysmic moment, we see how there is a fundamental danger of us collapsing into a new religion and into a new, you know, and, and a new religion in a way which becomes, you know, driven by a real kind of different Puritanism, you know, and I'm kind of reminded, for instance, you know, there's that very famous quote by Friedrich Nietzsche when he says, God is dead and we have killed him, right? If you read the full quote from Nietzsche, Nietzsche's very te is terrified by the death of God, because he said, because he goes on to say, you know, what, what, um, who are we going to become now? We've become the murderers of murderers, and he realized we would become gods in the place of God, and all the violence that we would commit because we replaced God with a nation state, and he understood that there were, we were creating a god more terrifying still. And I understood that, right? And this led to a particular kind of puritanical politics. Now, I think we're in an age today where liberalism has collapsed, where the right itself is becoming more emboldened in its ideas of identity and sovereignty and so on. Whereas there's elements of the left, which I find myself having absolutely nothing in association with whatsoever, because it's collapsed into a social media driven puritanism I just simply don't recognize myself in because there's no nuance, there's no opportunity to have a viable critique in the middle. There's no, as you say, you know, that prior to this pandemic, you know, so many of us were writing critically about the excessive power of the state, the state's right to ban comedy, culture, you know, the way in which the old, you know, Giorgio Agamben wrote, what defines the sovereign state was its, its right to ban its ability to ban things, that's its power, right? So we were writing critically about the state's right to ban. We were writing very critically about, you know, the whole project of Michel Foucault was writing critically about the politics of health and how, you know, biopolitics was always deeply political. So there's this radical movement which happens in the 1960s where we're critiquing the sovereign right to ban. We're critiquing, you know, the politics of pharma pharmacology. Not that we don't want to, we want to do away with medicine completely, but we recognize there's a politics to it. Today, you can't question that and unless you want to be thrown in bed with the alt-right. You know, it's kind of, and I know you've been kind of subjected to this yourself. If you're kind of standing in the middle and going, well, I don't know, can we just have a little bit of nuance here? Can we just actually just step back and criticize some of this? Then you just instantly with the alt-right. And, and, and it becomes, well, how do we get to that situation where politics is not only tribal, but it's puritanically tribal where, and I'm sure the vast majority of the public are going, well, I don't know, right? You know, I, I, I'm supporting a bit of the lockdown, but I recognize some people are losing their jobs, especially in the entertainment industry and the hospitality industry. And, and I'm concerned for their lives too. How do we kind of have a bit more nuance? And also, you know, the way in which the, the pandemic becomes almost like an untouchable now, especially for certain elements of the left, I find deeply, deeply problematic, especially, as I say, because I think what their arguments they're presenting are not actually politics at all. They're deeply theological. So. How would you how would you make the, the distinction, please, between a, the, their argument being theological and political? To help mm -hmm. me understand that, please. Yeah, well, well, I think in terms of the idea of me of the political is the political has to be always open to the possibility of new kinds of thinking. And it always has to be also 
to me, the, my idea of the political also has to be transgressive. For it to be transgressive, it cannot be rooted in irrefutable morals because we have no idea what the future is going to hold. I also believe that there's something about the idea of being transgressive, which requires a certain outrageousness. I, I believe, and that's why I think, you know, the history of comedy and art is so important politically because of its transgressive, outrageous, outrageous potentials. And, you know, and I'm thinking then very much in the spirit of someone like Oscar Wilde, who's, who really recognizes the beautiful poetic spirit of being outrageous because it's only by taking those risks that you can be transgressive. I see none of that in terms of the so-called theological elements of the left today, where to be outrageous is to be jumped upon, to be to say something a bit that goes against the grain of their absolute moral certainties is something which is will be immediately that the cause for you know a major kind of reaction of on mass by them on social media, you know, and how they can that can be mobilized as much as it can be mobilized by the right. And I think what I understand by theology in, in that sense is is a certain moral dogmatism, which is not open to, to the recognition that, yes, humans are fallible, but you know, there's something to be rejoiced in being kind of outrageous. And there's something to be rejoiced in terms of saying, well, actually, you know, we don't have the answers to the future, but you know, but actually, you know, let, let's actually speak to people we might fundamentally disagree with, because th then we might be able to work out this shared crazy thing called the human condition together, rather than being so certain about your place now in history that it doesn't entertain any alternative. And I think that's that to me is theology. That's not political. You know, when I like, and this is uh, to go right populist after that, thanks for describing that to me. I, I even feel myself like nervous even sort of putting this to you, not because of you, but because of the subject. Like like 15 years ago, I've, I guess, I can't remember when it was that I used to be on the radio. I would have someone like David Icke on the radio show, right? And David Icke would sort of say stuff, like some things that seemed like, wow, yeah, that's true. My God, there were all these figures that were involved in paedophilia, you know? And then like, you know, then he would say stuff about lizards and we'd all go, oh, come on, David. Like, you know, these things will be available somewhere, these conversations, you know, I'd had them on the radio. And then he'd just talk a lot about power and centralized power and in and how there would be this sort of march and continual themes around things like crises and then like the, how these crises would be used and then i feel like david ike i just use simply as an example went from being someone that had a, a following of people and i feel like they were i've always been kind of a curious about sort of conspiracy but i've also with me brad it, in the end i like to go can you give me some evidence on that but I always want that because otherwise I feel like we're just saying stuff and it gets kind of baroque and it gets a bit sort of <clears throat> emotional. And, and and I think if you apply the same sort of critical uh, methods that you would to any bit of information, then you're sort of left with some interesting ideas sometimes and some stuff that you're like, okay, yeah, possibly. But, so, but how have we gone from a figure like that being included to almost entirely removed at a time when information and the methods of information and the technology is is would could afford to sort of almost endless enclaves and nodes of uh, of communication and, and and extraordinary things could be getting said how who get again like the right to ban how how 
what's happening there and what do you think about that? And um, as I say, this is not a particular advocacy for David Icke. I'm just saying it's an interesting example because a bigger, look, significant part of what David Icke's, or, you know, said is like love, peace, pretty sort of straightforward stuff, you know, and, and, and as I've listed, they're also within that some kind of unusual things as well. What do you think about it? Well, I think there's, there's two things in terms of, you know, the questions of truth and conspiracy. And again, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in your conversation about, the, you know, the, the term of propaganda, you know, it's now called kind of proposed truth, right? But it's kind of the same stuff, right? But it's kind of rebranded. And it, again, if you think about, you know, some of the more important radical developments in the 1960s onwards was, was to question the ways in which power is invested in the constructions of truth. Now, I didn't mean to say there was no such thing as truth, and we, we recognize that, but it's, it's to look at the way in which truth is always mediated and filtered, and the ways in which you know there's much to be said about what's left out of discussions. And, and every now and again, it would give rise to these figures like David Icke, and you'd kind of go, well, you know, they're, they're interesting characters, but of course, you, you, you know, you'll say, well, actually, you know, give me some evidence to kind of back up, and I can reaffirm the idea of the ways in which truth is constructed through this. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Now, I think what's happened, and again, in, the, in the, a remarkable shift in, especially in terms of certain elements of radical politics as well, is how we talk about absolute morality. There's also now an absolute truth to things on the one hand, where people believe they have so much truth about their understanding of the world, there is no willingness to entertain an alternative. Now, this brings into the question of what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is precisely the normalization of the conspiratorial. If you disagree with their truth, then you are a conspiratorialist, right? So even though you might present all the evidence in the world to say, well, hang on, this is how much money these big tech companies are making. This is how much money Bezos is now worth. This is how much money the pharmaceutical companies are producing. You know, in Mexico, there's more people dying still today of heart attacks and diabetes than what they are of COVID. So let's have a conversation around this. But, but no, you're a conspiratorialist because that becomes the normalized alternative now in an age of the proliferation of information where it's almost impossible to prove that you just have your own vision of truth about the world. And I, I can't, you know, help but feel that there is something also very much integral here to, again, to the logics of new media technologies. Like what you said, Russell, you know, we both grew up in an age where we lived in a time prior to social media. So we know what that time looks like. We know what that age looks like. We're not kind of products of that system, even though we've been, you know, rapidly pulled into it and we know its effects very quickly. When we grew up, especially if you grew up in poor areas, like we both kind of did, you know, is that I think about it in terms of playground politics, you have to hang out with kids you disagree with. You have to hang out with people you dislike. You can't just simply block them or ban them or, you know, but this is the way in which the world of social media politics operates today, is that we, we're so consumed in our own isolated bubbles that we're not willing to entertain even the possibility that somebody might see the world differently, that they might disagree with us, that they might, you know, and something's being robbed in that moment of, genuine disagreement about the understanding of the human condition and how we, you know, it's okay to disagree and it's okay to actually have our own vision of truth about what our life should become. And making that the basis of a deeper conversation and reflection rather than simply saying, I know I'm morally right, 
because you believe this, you are now a conspiratorialist, because that's the way we see it. And this, again, it doesn't just happen on the, on the right. You know, and I think what's kind of interesting about the contemporary moment as well is how certain elements of the left have become almost like a mirrored reflection of what the right was in the 1980s. You know, in terms of saying, well, we should be banning this. We should, you know, I'm sure Mary Whitehouse would find a very beautiful home with some of the radical leftists today, you know, because there is this beautiful moment of kind of saying, no, we should ban this. We should close this down. We should, you know, because we are right. And I, and I think this is a real dangerous moment in politics because, as, because where is the center where everybody feels we can kind of have a genuine open conversation with one another to make up this, you know, crazy existence that we, we inhabit. So some extraordinary paradoxes are emerging. The idea that you get to curate your own reality, would they give us this information so we can give you products and services that are going to be particularly useful to you? While all the time it seems that actually a kind of um, immersive banalization is taking place and far from having more and more individual freedom power is becoming more and more centralized and you're right it's the the, the type of power systems that we're talking about now are unprecedented both in the type uh, the, the 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 energy or the source the resource that they're corralling is sort of attention consciousness awareness itself that it be, can be done in this as you describe it imminent immediate immediate bespoke continual manner and that we actually don't have the regulatory capacity to address it neither the will and given that I a co-committant component is that it creates this ongoing conflict in a way that I suppose is relatively traditional and uh, recognisable, the divide and conquer motif. It's unlikely, or it's sometimes difficult to envisage what an opposing movement might look that look like. One of the things that I increasingly recognise his um, perspicacity uh, as a thinker, Adam Curtis says, is like that, you know, it's like some, I guess we're, some of these things are generational. And when I sort of think about, like, you know, because of me in, 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 in a somewhat ad hoc way, you know, you remember because you were supportive of me when this stuff was going on, our governments, they're hollowed out, they're meaningless, they're never going to do anything, no point voting, all that stuff. Adam Curtis has said, well, actually, no, there is actually power there. There is the power to give quantitative easing after 2008. There is the power to, uh, to, to, make, to mandate some procedures and to create lockdowns and introduce new legislation and regulation. The problem is not the power. The, power, the problem is how that power is being used and who wields that power. And I suppose perhaps, Brad, for all our talk of how novel this situation is, perhaps it's the same problem it's always been. Are the people able to wrest the mechanic, the machinery of power away from elite interests and back into the hands of ordinary people? Is that still the challenge? And given some of the things that we've just outlined, what what does the argument start to look like? What kind of spaces do we need to create to communicate in? 
Well, yeah, I, I think this, this is you know, such an important question. Russell. I think well, it's interesting when you, the, the way you kind of expressed wielding there, I, I almost kind of thought of the flip side of yielding, right? So we yield to power, what power is wielded and we have to yield before it, right? So now I think there's, you know, there is a fundamental battle taking place and that has always taken place actually from, and I'm really taken actually by that, you know, the way you talk about the machinery of power, right? Because we've been talking about technology and, you know, if we go back to the birth of philosophy, there is a fundamental debate even there between what's basically simply called the poetic and the technical, right? The poetic belongs to a human sensibility, which is all too human. It's about things you can't put into words. It's about things which make human life so wonderful. It's about things which can't be calculated, controlled. You know, so the poetic sensibility is all about love. It's about tragedy. It's about emotion. It's about, you know, the very things and the bonds of spirituality, which doesn't have to be consecrated in some monotheistic God. It's just something which is just beautiful about existence. The technical, of course, is the attempt to master life and to bring it into a machinery of control. Now, that tension has always been there, but I think within a different moment in the order of that battle where you know the technology is one and and also the technology is also claiming the poetic now if you're going to be an artist you have to use technology right you know you, 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 you know, the technology is the only thing which everything has to be filtered through so the question becomes for me is what's really at stake here is a fundamental question about what it means to be human and and you know what does an alternative politics look like you know all the big shifts in terms of thinking about global politics and the very nature of ontology and who we are as human beings has been to slowly wither away the very idea that being human is exceptional right now we we know within this you know that it, there's a great deal of hist of problems once in the 18th century, when the human starts to put itself at the center of the universe and the human believes it's God, it's the top of the animal food chain, all the problems which are kind of associated with this. But we've gone completely now to the other end of the scale where in doctrines such as resilience, we're told we're no better to any other plant life or in ideas of post-humanism, all human life is is now complex data. And all of this is basically providing a fundamental assault on the idea that being human matters and being human as a unique species. And I'm not saying that, you know, as a unique species, you suddenly say, well, once again, we're top of the food chain and we can dominate the earth. And that's not exceptional. That's, that's just hierarchy, you know? And I think, you know, I, I've talked previously to you about you know, the need for an exceptional politics not we shouldn't be driven by technologies we are not complex data we're not you know i'm not the same as a plant who can simply bounce back when there's a catastrophe you know there, there is something beautiful to be inhuman and we need to retain that and i often think that you know that to me is where there's a real tension in the world today if we think about power as being you know overwhelmingly technical how can we think about a, a more emancipatory politics which you know is not yielding us now to the sublime power of technology. The technology is going to save us from everything, including our own wretched selves. You know, and I think there is something that we need to pull back and say, no, being human matters. You know, and 
the singularity of being, you know, technologists talk a lot about the singularity. And this is a moment when our consciousness will be uploaded to some virtual system. You know, the singularity of being human is truly important because it might allow us to have a much more ancestral ethics to the human condition, something which precedes modernity something which is very much in tune with nature, but still recognizes that being human is important. And I think that is where the fundamental battle is taking place right now. Yes, I think you're right. And these uh, nullifying tropes about the, um, uh, the, the, that we are material and redundant and without essence, it's not as if they have mobilized a new order that is desirable. And since we've accepted that human beings aren't exceptional, we've really gotten on and respected the earth and we see the orangutans now as our brothers and we treasure the forests and the jungles and the plains and we revere the coral. It's like, there's business as usual, business as usual, but now the, the spirit of rebellion and radicalism and revolution, the vitality and verve required to mobilize people is starting to dissipate you see it you know man you see it in the skies you see it in the food you see it in the communities you see it in the screens and the phones a kind of kind of unpeople francis bacon the artist like read once like a, one of his lovers saying that francis bacon wouldn't allow people to be switched off like if you if he was in a cafe being served and the person was on an autonomous autonomous like Francis Bacon would like jazz them you know like be here be here be here but more and more I find myself in places and spaces where people are switched off where people have sort of ex their consciousness has been colonized placeholder people or what do they call them in like, you know, like sort of non-player characters, NCOs, they were like in a lot of alt-right memeing, you know, they talk about like in the gaming world about the characters you might encounter in a role-player game that are not being operated by a human. And yes, it's like these machine-like systems are making us more machine-like. This seems to be like that, that, uh, that as our role as consumer becomes more entrenched, as it becomes clear that there isn't a need for so many people, as the working class becomes an unnecessary class because of automation and artificial intelligence, I, I, it's almost like you can watch the um, the uh, the desiccation taking place, the juice of life being eliminated, and yeah, and 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 as and 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 while this happens in an environment that it becomes like a a delicate and unlovely dance, even to communicate, and that you can't speak to people like because I, I remember earlier in our conversations when I first started to inquire of you. For me, it seems like even then, five years ago, whatever, that it was simpler things. And when I was saying things like, how about like, you know, when you see these sort of football hooligan type movements in like the in Britain, you think, well, hold on a minute. These guys, there's a lot of energy there. Now, I reckon it's an easier task to get them to understand, hey, listen, I don't think your target should be like Muslim folk around your way. It's much more like that. Couldn't we, <laughs> you know, like, but now these kind of are, this seems less and less likely because there are more and more poles, more and more sort of like stakes have been driven down into the ground between us all. And uh, 
I still somehow remain optimistic. Partly something about these conversations, like you know, whenever I speak with you or like speaking to Vandana yesterday, and I still feel no, there's something. There's something about like that. Even though, like, I take your point earlier, like, it's not like we want some slapdash, spontaneous, crash-bang, wallop, let's sling up the barricades-type response. Because, actually, this is where the my own spiritual beliefs come in rather handy, is that I believe in an ulterior object. I believe in a, a, the, 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 the reality that, as we perceive it, is not the total of all potential realities. I could put it into the sort of poetics of the quantum world, a super state of limitless potentialities that could be re realised and determined by courses of action. I can see it and feel it in that way. It seems somehow insurmountable, but I meet people all the time, you among them, that make me believe in the possibility of change and that it it will come from individual choice, the consciousness of individuals, learning, learning in some sort of very sort of archetypal, simple, mythic way to overcome the challenges within ourselves and how that will lead to new collaborations and new opportunity. So that's the end of my yeah, announcement no, I... now, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question in that. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's a lovely image Russell because I think you know there's um you know I don't want to be post-human right I, I just want to be human all too human as Nietzsche would say you know and and there's something you know I also think we need to get out of this idea that and it's, it's a very mod well it's a very theological idea but th this idea that humans somehow need saving right that we need saving from ourselves Yes, we have problems and we need help sometimes and we need people to listen to our troubles and we need guidance through very dark times which we all go through. But the human condition doesn't need saving. We need to be allowed just to be human and to make mistakes and to recognize that making mistakes is part of being human and, and let's get on with this, you know. And I, 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 you talked about the example of the football hooligans, you know, and. Um, I'm also, you talk about like, the stakes in the ground of tribal politics. I've been reading a lot more recently because another project which I'm actually just now working on is kind of a personal memoir of life growing up in the South Wales Valleys. And reading about like the likes of Paul Robeson going to the Welsh Valleys and really finding a connection with the people there because the struggles were the same and the struggles were struggles which ordinary living people were just going through you know so for him the struggle of the history of slavery was exactly the same as what working people in the mines in south wales were going through you know there was no narrative of white privilege and all these kind of you know these dominant signifiers we now have today it's just simply look let's work out this shit together right we're all in the same mess how do we try to find some kind of meaningful connection while recognizing our worlds are different. And, and I think that something has been tragically lost in this. And But I'm also, I, I want to come back also to your point on Francis Bacon, because, you know, the, what a beautiful human, but a tragic human as well, Bacon, you know, and the way in which Bacon saw and recognized the violence of the world, you know, the, the way in which Bacon paints the invisible forces which really consume the body and tear it apart, but also, you know, no machine could ever paint like Bacon. It could never capture the raw reality of suffering, which Bacon manages to capture. You know, however artificially intelligent it might become, it might mimic Bacon, but it's never going to paint the feeling of Bacon. When Bacon says, you know, 
When I walk past a butcher's shop, I'm often amazed there's not human carcasses hanging in the window. You know, no machine's ever going to understand that depth of feeling of suffering and tragedy. And I think there is something that's all too human, you know, as, as you say, in terms of where does a future policy, you know, if there's something to cling on to, to be optimistic, it's to recognize that being human is beautiful. You know, we don't need saving from machines or complex data sets or algorithms. I don't want an algorithm to tell me what my consumer choices should be. You know, I'm, I'm happy in my own, you know, volition of choices of, you know, mediocre things. I'm cool with that. You know? so. <laughs> do you talk about some of this stuff? I'm assuming you do in Eke Humanitas. Is that how to say it? Your new book, the bit that I've... Um, looking at now as it says that you look at uh, the changing nature of sacrificial violence from the theological origins of sacrifice which we all understand uh, to the uh, contemporary exhaustion of the um you know the modern victim in, in contemporary civilization what did do you, do you mean that what well, there is a kind of what do you mean by that yeah well in, in terms of what I, I guess a lot of this stuff is touched upon in that book um and what i try to tease out is the way in which certain appropriations of a sacred politics can be taken by dominant orders for power in order to smuggle violence continually into that regime and to allow it to be seen as like all you know in order for a sacred project to exist it must appear timeless it has to be you know eternal so and what i try to map out in the book then is how we can understand a great deal about the history of violence and war by the ways in which different sacred objects appear throughout history. So if you want to understand Christianity, we understand the untouchable body of Christ and how violence was carried out in the name of Christ in terms of the, the old religious wars. If we want to understand then the nation state, the sacred object and the untouchable object for power of the nation state becomes the military hero. And the military hero becomes the, you know, and there's a wonderful moment in, in Goya's painting where he paints, you know, the military hero, almost like in a Christ-like position, who's kind of, you know, just about to be sacrificed, uh, shot on the 3rd of May, and the body of Christ becomes the military hero very quickly, and that becomes the sacred object. Now, with liberalism, that sacred object becomes the victim, the, and then we know how the victim becomes the ways in which we can wage humanitarian war because the victim, especially the young child and the woman, becomes this kind of untouchable object. Now, if liberalism is dead, my question is, well, what's the new sacred object? Well, the sacred object is humanity. We are all now told we have to sacrifice constantly. Right? We have to sacrifice, you know, for, you know, the pandemic is a, is a big motif of our own sacrifice for, for others. But my question is, it's not about the sacrifice. Well, even though the sacrifice itself is very much a, you know, linked to histories of violence, it's what becomes the dominant sacred or the theological power. If humanity is now the sacred object, what's saving us in a world in which we no longer believe in God? And that is where the technology comes in. It, it hovers over us like this kind of imminent all-seeing divine revelation that's going to save us from everything. And, and that to me is where there's an appropriation of the more spiritual aspects of what the sacred might mean put to use in the service of power because there's no better way to compel allegiance than if you can mobilize the sacred in a very particular direction. And that's where if the, you know, the, the technology, and I, I was thinking again in terms of the way in which we talked about a bit earlier, Russell, about you know, the difference between the 20th century and now 
If we think of totalitarian regimes in the 20th century, we often thought about them in terms of governed by secrecy and governed by the operations of secrecy, but we still knew their structure, we still knew their organization, we still knew their power. There's a dream of totalitarianism where you have perfect knowledge about all citizens, but the citizens have absolutely no idea about how the system operates. Wow. That's technology today. I, you know, and whether I post something which is critical of technology and somehow it gets no likes. So, you know, have I been shadow banned? I've got no idea. Right. So and it makes you yourself think, am I being conspiratorial here? You know, then and I but I think we have no understanding of the operation of this power because it's like a god, it's an excess. You cannot know it. And I think that's where it becomes you know, a system of unrivaled power through the object of the sacredness. That's cool. It's like the, um, the now the mechanic for Kafka's paranoia is present. It's with us. Someone must have been lying, <laughs> you know, like, like it can just happen to you now. <laughs> like you don't you don't know how the machinery and, it, and and also Kafka preempts that it will be kind of bureaucratic and plain as opposed to the sort of animal or you know, insectoid experience of being of being human. This plain, bland, crushing unknowable force this unloving god of all edges yeah that's cool that's cool brad i've got to wrap it up because i've got to do i've got to do another thing but yeah always a pleasure chatting to you mate yeah just keep us posted i'm sending my love brad speak to you soon man take care okay man bye bye thank you for listening to under the skin with me russell edward kyle charles bradley (laughs) poppin j brad and thank you for listening to Jenny May Finn as well. You don't have a middle name, do you, Jen? I do, yeah. I told you before. Jenny May. It's alliteration. Happening. Maggie May. No, for, for the Finn bit. Jenny May Felicity. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you I remember. remember. Jenny May Felicity Finn. Jenny May Felicity Finn, Hermit Crab. <laughs> no. Wretch. Mm, t- no. Toucans are good. No. <laughs> yes, they They're are. mischievous. They're mischievous. I'd in. like one. You should get a toucan. It wouldn't annoy you. It keep tapping on things. I wonder about his clacky beak. Yeah, they tap the glass. on things. Of course yeah. they do. Tap, tap, tap. That's all they do, isn't it? <laughs> They're real clacker to jacks. All right. Well, this uh, and also you should listen to football is nice if you like football or if you like comedy. Or if you don't like football. Yeah, if you like both. If you like comedy or football, they're good, aren't they? Yeah. Thank you for listening to me, Russell Brand and Jenny May Finn. God help us all. God help us on under the skin. Hold on, let me see, make sure I've said everything. Yeah, I have. Oh, and if you enjoyed that, why don't you listen to all Brad's episodes, including Under the Skin num- Numero Uno? I bet, you know, I've not listened to that, but I bet I'm more piping up than I. Yeah, you're always a lot more excited. And like joins. interrupting. Now yeah. I just sit down and I shut up. Don't yeah. I? People really like it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah. That's going I meant in it book. in a good way. Oh, it's going in the book, Jim. It's going in there. It's going in the book. Uh, thanks for listening to Under the Skin. Only from Luminary.